Opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the prize is high in the sky. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate, agitate, agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with new abolitionist and actionist Johanna Nalaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is December 28th, 2016 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio, our last broadcast of the year. You can tell 2017, you don't have to come looking for us. We're coming for you. As usual, we'll cover the stories and issues relevant to the fight against modern-day slavery and human trafficking. Today, we spotlight new and proposed laws in Missouri and nationwide, one in particular that charges children, regardless of age, with a Class E felony for fighting in school or even engaging in a harmless playground scuffle. Another law being proposed in Washington makes any form of protest that causes an economic disruption a Class C felony. When we tell you how citizens are being criminalized for profit and control, this is it in a nutshell. Then, along with the signing of uh, major asset forfeiture reform bill last week, California Governor Jerry Brown signed a bill into law making it a felony for prosecutors to intentionally withhold evidence under the new law. Prosecutors who alter or intentionally withhold evidence from defense counsels can face up to three years in prison. Also, Exodus Foundation founder, the Reverend, Reverend Madeline McClenney Sadler, has pledged to go on a hunger strike to gain the freedom of 80,000 nonviolent federal prisoners. We'll share the information tonight. Private prisons are ecstatic over the election of Trump. Corrections Corporation of America, CCA, CEO Damon Henniger said this week that he expects profits to soar under the new president's immigration policy. Our rider of the 21st century Underground Railroad is Adrian P. Thomas. 
a father of seven children living in Troy, New York, when in September 2008, his four-month-old son died, he was charged with second-degree murder, found guilty, and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Then, on June 12, 2014, in a retrial, the jury found him not guilty of second-degree murder of his infant son. The case created controversy about how much coercion is legally permissible in police interrogations. Our abolitionist and profile this week will be provided by Scotty Reed. You can now listen to the live stream on Black Talk Radio's YouTube page. If you'd like to share a comment or question, call in toll-free from the U.S. and Canada at 1-866-510-9025 or 704-802-5056. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash blacktalkradionetwork.com. Once again, I'm Max Barthes. What's happening, Brother Scotty? What's up, your honey? Peace, peace, peace to you, Max, and to the uh, radio listeners out there. Um, Just ready to do this last broadcast of 2016, but like you said, 2017, we coming for you. I'm telling you, you ain't got to come off coming for you <laughs> man we kicked some ass in 2016 ain't no lie we, we kicked some ass in 2016 we were swinging high blows too man them coming from way back in Alabama and hitting the New Jersey type blows it was pretty slick to see man how your week been uh, your honor oh, man just the holiday week you know everybody's excited about the holidays and, and distracted so I've been um feeling like uh kind of doing recon work kind of just a uh, one man in back in the backwoods kind of checking things out on my own other than talking to you all every week uh since the election up through thanksgiving now through christmas and a whole another week with with the new year you know people are easily distracted they they want to live with folklore and and tales of you know different things that are not reality to to distract them and it ends up being where the society is more distracted than they are actually engaged so you mean we'll get um, things back mm-hmm. you mean distractions like i would have beat donald trump if i could have ran for a third term <laughs> all of it man this the lawsuits the steadily crying, the 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 inauguration buildup, and the people saying they they not my president. I'm not gonna perform. I'm not gonna show up. The protest that they planning for the inauguration, like I said, the holidays, just all of it. It's like an extended vacation from actual reality. And really, what I'm seeing in the in the <clears throat> in the vacuum of people staying focused on addressing freedom freedom issues. <clears throat> is what I'm seeing is a lot of room is left there in that vacuum for, <clears throat> excuse me, these uh, these arguments. I'm seeing a lot more arguments about um, feminism, about LGBT rights. I'm talking about within groups that are supposedly attached to or representing black power or black freedom, uh, you know, grassroots activism are, are doubling down on um, intersectionality on the the bringing the margins to the middle uh, this type of talk which this is what happens when 
the people don't want to do the fighting that we're telling them we need to do. They don't want to listen to the absolute truth about how bad the situation is. So these people that are underneath where we're at with the level of intensity and reality and truth that we're talking about week in, week out, these groups that are up under that, they're bringing in all this this swell of people that are like, you know what, I don't want to fight for freedom altogether. I don't want to say in slavery. That's radical. But I will fight with you to make sure that transsexual men get the attention that they deserve and get their seat at the table. Like, that's some more of that intangible BS, you know, pipe dream stuff that people want to stay focused on. If you are black and transsexual, I can guarantee you the, the racial profiling of the law enforcement, the reason why you in jail and in prison is because of your black skin. It ain't got nothing to do with what you do with your penis or if you cut it off or if you whatever you're doing. If you're gay and you're in and out of jail and you back and forth in these prison situations and you're facing slavery, you're doing that dollar a day, if you're lucky, labor for major Wall Street corporations. You're not in there and doing that because you're gay. So when I hear them talking about come to the table and we're going to bring this, bring the margins to the center, that draws in the people that don't want to be serious about revolution. This isn't part of um, tonight's lineup of programs, um, but I've been taking a break. Um, Actually, I've been taking a break from broadcasting uh, Black Talk Radio News so I can do like some end of the year cleaning in regards of getting the house in order and all of that in regards to the Black Talk Media Project. In regards to the physical house as well, you know, trying to just uh, uh, get rid of some of this stuff that I have accumulated. But one of the stories that really stood out to me and I plan on doing a video about it later, but I could just talk about it now real briefly about the police union, the world's largest police union here in the United States, uh, getting Walmart to ban uh, the bulletproof Black Lives Matter T-shirts. Now, when I saw that story, I was like, okay, why is Black Lives Matter partnering with Walmart? as a vendor to distribute their t-shirts do they not know and right now there are, are prison slaves on the plantation right now deconstructing all of those gifts that are being returned to Walmart so that they can be repackaged and put back on the shelves and what have you so I'm thinking okay Black Lives Matter do you not know Walmart's involvement in modern day slavery and human trafficking and I don't know how I really feel about that you would think that they should know cause I mean don't black lives matter in prison on the plantation Don't I, I, I would hope you know that they would matter to them but then I'm also looking at the fact that man there is so much in this country tainted by slavery and human trafficking, it's hard to do anything. So I'm I'm willing to cut them a break on that, but I'm just wondering if they actually knew, if there was a conversation before they decided to disseminate products through Walmart, if there was a conversation, well, y'all know Walmart uses one of the biggest users of prison slave labor in this country. But at the same time, we do need to raise money so we can fight slavery 
So we'll go ahead and, and since Walmart's the largest distributor, maybe we can, you know, get more money that way and uh, we can put it towards fighting slavery. So I still don't know how I, I feel about it, but that's on my mind right now when I saw that story. Well, as far as I know, based on what they released on August 1st, 2016, and what they just recently put on their website, Black Lives Matter as an organization, the one that is collecting these dollars, does not see this fight as a fight against slavery. In their list of platforms, uh, there is nothing about taking the 13th Amendment exception clause out, nothing about ending slavery. Number three and number two and number one is uh, effectively end the war on black people, the reparations for past and continuing harms, and three, divestment from institutions that criminalize, cage, and harm black people, and investment in education, health, and safety of black people. So as far as the uh, criminal justice system, they see that as a fight against mass incarceration. I've been working on that, as you know now, for a couple of years, trying to get them to recognize this as modern-day slavery and treat it as such. To date, for the entire uh, organization, I have not been successful. Hmm. You know where they would have found that information out, though? From the abolitionists? Yeah. They, they would have known. This is what we have been saying since they, yeah, they started uh, with generating some some uh, interest in, in their movement after Trayvon Martin, but they really came into, into their own after uh, Michael Brown's killing, <clears throat> excuse me, in Ferguson. And that's when, you know, they really kind of took off and they never looked back from there. And at least since Ferguson, we have been saying on sometimes a weekly basis the same thing. And in our individual communications throughout various forms of the social media, all kinds of pages and places around the inter internet, we have been interacting with and communicating with them and other groups that it's slavery. So at some point, it becomes obvious that these people are choosing to ignore what's being said to them. And I believe that it has something to do with they don't want to, to uh, cut off their funding. Because we know well, what, what, it, what it takes to run. Here's the rub of it all. As you know, a lot of these uh, Black Lives Matter chapters are independent chapters separate from the organization. Uh, they're not mm -hmm. really being dictated by the organization. And in a number of those, very close friends and allies of ours are abolitionists who are the leaders of Black Lives Matter chapters in America. For instance, right. Mardine Dubon, who has been right. a guest uh, here. Uh, and several others that I've been in direct communication with. But I think at some point between me and you and, and Scotty and them, and then them and the hierarchy of Black Lives Matter, the message is lost, or the priority right. is lost. It's not passed upwards to the people who are really making the policies. Yeah, I know that's the case. Because like you said, we know that uh, Muadine, we know he's doing his thing. I mean, I follow him all the time. I see him correcting people. I see people asking questions and he's answering directly with abolitionist language about situations where it applies. I know he's not in denial or in some kind of crazy state of mind that this is something other than what it is. I know he knows what's up. And I also mm -hmm. know he's struggling to get the abolitionist message beyond even those in his own group right there that hear what he's saying. And I know that these leaders 
that are just talking heads and the figureheads and the ones on the microphones and the ones that are being invited to panels and the ones that are creating policy and putting these things out, the ones that are making the deals with Amazon and with Walmart. Because the reason why it's, it came back out again is because the uh, Fraternal Order of Police also went to Amazon and said that they need to take mm -hmm. it off. So, I mean, the people that are doing it on that level mm -hmm. are not listening to the abolitionist message. They, it doesn't have anything to do with their reality. They want to keep getting their checks. They don't want to say anything that's going to be controversial. They don't want to throw a blow that's going to leave a mark. They want to swing in a play fight and act like they slap boxing with the problem. They don't want you know, to bash the problem upside its head. I think to a large degree, I might agree with you on that. In particular, after the 13th emerged, after the 13th, I would suspected that like any other organization, even legal organization, that were gathering in groups to watch this film to get a better understanding of the effect of the 13th Amendment's exception clause that Black Lives Matter chapters were doing the same thing. So somebody at some point who makes the, the policies or makes the decisions decided, you know what, that's just not impressive enough for me. I'm not going to change my mind. I'm not going to put that in what we're talking about it, and I'm not going to worry about it. So there has been no change from the 13th. So that should have been a catalyst, you know what I mean? Because I know people all over America was getting together in groups and watching the 13th to get a better understanding of its effect. And apparently that had no impact. At least yep. not yet. So they're making deals with Walmart and you know other major corporations like that. And I can't point any fingers because I don't know who exactly is doing it. And frankly, I don't want to waste my time trying to figure it out. I got my mission and I'm going to keep doing it. Right. Well, there you have it. So was that Scotty? Was that kind of a was that kind of like just a first the first story just kind of lead right into that? Because I mean, there is that is a, a significant news story that Walmart you know stopped the sale uh, well, online anyway Thursday and yeah, I mean, Amazon well, is still kind of up in the air. Well, I had done some research on it, and um, Walmart had actually pulled some Blue Lives Matter merchandise after they got complaints. Good. You know, so I wasn't going to point at Walmart and say, oh, uh, you know, uh, why you take them shirts out? Because, see, they trying to avoid controversy. And when I found that they had removed Black Lives, I mean, not, excuse me, removed Blue Lives Matter merchandise because they felt it was controversial and people were complaining. So at least they're being consistent. But that still, though, that still, though, does not excuse the lack of information or the ignoring of information of the role that Walmart plays in 21st century slavery and human trafficking. So, so uh, in terms of Amazon, I haven't seen anything about Amazon um, utilizing prison slave labor or, or anything like that. Um, but, I do know they got some White Lives Matter t-shirts on sale on Amazon as well. And so I was looking at this slave catcher of the um, United States' uh, largest union of slave catchers. I'm saying, oh, he, 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 well, I'm starting to become more codified and ask questions instead of making statements. But is it racist for him to point out uh, or to ask Amazon to remove Black Lives Matter shirts, but 
fail to even say anything about the White Lives Matter shirts. Because, see, their thing is, oh, what this shirt is offensive. It's offensive. Um, you shouldn't be selling this. And, and blah, blah, blah. It's divisive. It's causing division. So what about the Blue Lives Matter? What about the White Lives Matter? Which we knew was simply a childish response to young people saying, well, you know, black lives should matter. Black lives do matter. We're going to make them matter uh, if we had to fight and whatnot. So, you know, uh, uh, in terms of the Amazon, I'm looking to see what they do. I've already bookmarked their White Lives Matter (laughs) shirts and what have you. But I'm looking at this slave catcher for what he is. He's a slave catcher, and it appears, I don't know for sure, that he's practicing racism as well. Um, but again, what really uh, got to me about that story, I shouldn't say got to me, but I took note of, was the fact that um, here you had this organization that's saying Black Lives Matter, but it doesn't seem to care about, you know, those black lives on the prison plantation. You know, they talk about mass incarceration, but I mean, that's like that's like talking out of both sides of your mouth, don't you think? That that you're saying, oh, I'm against mass incarceration, which is really slavery, but I'm willing to do business with people who are a major part of that, that making black lives not matter unless they're making money for me on the plantation. So, uh, yeah, that's all I got on that, guys. To take that even further, I'm going to ask for your help, Scotty and Johanna, and also anybody who can hear my voice right now, I'm going to ask for your help personally. Now, you remember when we spoke about uh, uniting the prisoners inside with the abolitionists outside to uh, create a labor strike, and eventually it occurred. Those types of things started happening to the point where we made history. Well, here's another opportunity, and I think it's even going to be bigger. It's the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March on August, 7th, uh, August uh, 2017 in Washington, D.C., we're uh, getting to the stage now where we're starting to get groups to form who can organize bus trips from all over America. We want to pack D.C. more than it was packed in 65 with the uh, March for Jobs. We, that's our intention, and to really focus on one thing, modern-day slavery and human trafficking. It's unprecedented. It's not a potpourri of issues. We are coming there for only one reason, and we're going to make America pay attention to what's happening. And by that time, I suspect that things will have gotten so bad that many people will be on our side. It might even be in the millions of people there on that occasion. So I'm going to need your help pushing and promoting and organizing, you and the people who are listening. You can get information at I am we. Ubuntu.com uh, I was speaking with one of the organizers or uh, primary organizer today uh, Sister Roundtree and she was uh, tell, telling me about the stages that they're at at this point but this is to get people physically up and show them there we don't have to guess who cares anymore we can physically see them because if you really give a damn about slavery in America legally happening every single day that's the place to be which is going to happen in August 2017. Indeed, indeed. I'm going to work to be there, and um, if by some kind of way I'm not able to be there myself, I definitely will be sponsoring others to be able to go because it's it's important to make that kind of show. I know what effect 
the Million Man March had on my life. And at that time, I was relatively young and not really sure how I felt about putting myself out there like that. Is that that radical or that concerned? I mean, I think I had a pretty good life and it seemed radical for me to want to participate in something like that at the time. So there's somebody that's listening right now that may feel the same way. Like, do I, do I really want people to know that I'm going to this event to say that I want to end slavery? Do I really want to align with something like that to really say I'm an abolitionist to say that, that prison uh, is legal slave, legal slave labor that's going on in the prisons is by the 13th amendment. Do I really want people to know I'm taking it that deep? Like I felt that way when Farrakhan was making the call and I heard everything he was saying, every point he was making about coming and why you should I identify with all of them. There wasn't nothing he said that I was like, well, you, now you're pushing it. All of it made sense. And when that was over and we came back and we were here in our city, I got with 14 other brothers and we started an organization and that was my first push as an adult into activism. And we're able to help little children. We're able to build up a coalition between us, raise money on a regular basis, work with the mayor at that time. Uh, mayor Manuel Cleaver was here in the city of Kansas City. We were able to do a lot of good for people. And when he was out of office, the funding dried up and the operation dried up and we all kind of did what we did as individuals. But here we are again at another problem and really the root problem that we were fighting back then that I didn't have sense enough to know then but I know now the root of a lot of those things, slavery. So I will be there. And like I said, if by some kind of way, it don't be that I can be there, there will be some that will be, that will be sponsored to be able to go in my place. Definitely. Um, you you got to be there. You and Scotty both. Cause I'm going to expect both of y'all to say something to the, to the crowd. I mean, but, um, but you know, Well, maybe by then, it's in August, maybe by then, I will have someone here or another assistant to take care of the broadcasting operations. But y'all know, I can't, that's why I don't go nowhere now. I'm tied down, man. I can't travel um, like I would want to. Or maybe, maybe, just maybe, we might have the equipment to do a remote broadcast by then. Whatever it takes, let's let's do A B C D then. Whatever we need to do to get it so we can be there on that day, because this is our equivalent of the sixty five March, and you are and Johanan are the equivalents of the speakers of that day, but on a higher level because even then they weren't focused on a specific issue. We are focused on a specific issue on that day, ending slavery in America, and I suspect that it'll be quite different than the sixty five March or even the Million Man March. And it may be more than a million if we do this correctly and if Donald Trump cooperates and screws things up pretty well so people can get pissed off enough to be there. Hmm. Well, uh, one of our stories is talking about uh, what we talked about last week, the market and all indicators reflecting that they all believe there's more room to invest in private prisons. Uh, I saw a story today that was talking about how so far everyone that's been named as a potential uh, addition to his cabinet is someone who is on record as being aggressively in favor of privatization of prisons. And um, so these are things that are that are significant. You know, these are things that will, as much as we're telling people that the root of it is slavery and that we've shown over so many years that the spider web that leads to from slavery leads out to 
things that we think, like what we're talking about right now, Walmart, Amazon, I mean, major marketplaces. Um, that in the case of Walmart, that at one point, if they still do or not, that at one point definitely was taking advantage of slave labor. We've talked about all of these companies, you know, over the years. So if he indeed gets in and puts or, or gets his cabinet in, and all these people are pro prison privatization, and we already know that the GEO Group, for one example, hired three new lobbying firms last or this year earlier before the election even came down. They they hired three new lobbying firms in the aftermath of the stock market crash, the hit that they took when the DOJ put out that memo saying they were going to end privatization, phase it out, they hired three new firms in Washington. And now Trump's in office. Then they gave $250,000 just straight up, didn't even care. Like, look, we know this is illegal and, and somebody going to say something, but here, take the money. Remember us. We're going to need your help to make more billions of dollars. And they welcomed that money in. He got in office. Saying all this to say, it's very likely not to be doom and gloom. I'm not, you know, I'm prefacing all of this to say this because I don't want people to think I'm just out here emotional and I'm upset and I'm scared of Trump and all this kind of thing. I'm giving you factual information about right, why it's right, likely to right. you giving them battlefield assessment. That it will happen. Yeah, it's a reason why we say that it's likely that you will be feeling the pain enough come August to you going to want to be in Washington. You know, Johan, and also... Um, it just comes to my mind that we need to be mobilizing the abolitionists to be contacting these board members of USA Inc. to oppose these confirmations. We have to be on record of opposing the confirmation of 21st century slavers and human traffickers who, who like you said, make no secret of their support of private prisons. I, I think it's pretty scary. certain that we're already on record. <laughs> like they have no <laughs> from governors to mayors to sheriffs to the individual. No, that's that's not media, what I mean, Max. The people who would call themselves allies have all felt the lash of the new abolitionist radio team. Yeah, what I, what I mean though is is writing their board members, emailing them, calling them, and stating to them that I want you to oppose this nomination, so-and-so nomination, like, for example, Jeff Sessions. All right. I'm not even going... I'm going to call my... my, my um, why do I say that? I'm going to call the board member of USA Inc. that's over this district, that was elected from this district, and I'm not going to say oppose Jeff Sessions because he might be a racist because of these things in his background. No, I'm going... I want to oppose him because he supports 21st century slavery and human trafficking and and that, you know, this... this uh, um, you know, it's a problem. It's a problem. So I'm just saying we should be on record for these nominations, of, you know, by sending these emails and making these phone calls just so that we can put the abolitionist message in whoever it is here that we call to oppose these nominations. So that that's all I'm saying. And it's also an exercise that could help us recruit um, new abolitionists. But I'm just saying I don't think that we can afford to sit on the sideline while we, I'm – let me rephrase that. We're not sitting on the sidelines, but I think that we have to uh, do some direct action connected to those individual uh, confirmation hearings. Just my opinion. You're right. You're right. You're right, brother. And you know, like we all do what we can do. Like me, I go and talk to them face to face when I get have the opportunity. Uh, like the congressman from Missouri, uh, 
that we had on the program a couple of months ago, you know, and uh, who is an abolitionist, mind you. And we also have, I believe, it's a senator out of Missouri as well that was doing this. You no, know, Wisconsin was now abolitionist as well. But um, indeed, brother, we we have the eight thirty mark. Do you want to take our break and then start on the story from Missouri and the new law out of there? Yes, sir. All right. Well, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio here on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. This is your opportunity to text somebody or tag somebody that the program is on, and they should be tuning in right now. We'll be right back after these messages. made possible in part with help from the Black Talk Media Project, a North Carolina-based nonprofit engaged in the production and distribution of independent digital black media. Find out more by going to blacktalkradionetwork.com or blacktalkmediaproject.org and look for the menu tab, Crowdfunding Black Media. Black Talk Media Project, helping to provide you with new black media for the new millennium. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Our first story off the line, well, not our first story, but uh, our first main story comes out of thinkprogress.org, and it's in regards to a new law that has already been passed and goes into effect come this coming new year. And it shows you why we should be fighting for the children, if anything, if not anything, fight for the kids who are now being further criminalized and their lives and futures being ruined by racist lawmakers. In a move that will likely doom countless children to the school-to-prison pipeline, Missouri will soon charge students who get into fights with felonies. Now, remember, we keep telling you that 95% of all um, all charges and in plea bargains because of felonies. A state statute that goes into effect on January 1st will no longer treat fights in schools or buses as a minor offense, regardless of a young person's age or grade. So this is literally applicable from preschool all the way up. Instead, school resource officers, SROs, and local law enforcement officers will now intervene by arresting and charging them with assault in the third degree, a Class E felony. That type of assault can result in four years of prison time, fines, or probation. Attempts or threats to cause harm will be treated as a Class A misdemeanor, which can lead to a year of prison time if law enforcement or school officials consider the assaulted person a special victim, a student can be charged with a Class D felony that comes with a maximum prison term of seven years. Schools and 
and law enforcement officials were previously able to pursue misdemeanor charges for school fights. The enhanced charges could do even more damage to kids' criminal records long before students understand what having a record means. And students of color will have an even larger target on their back. The school-to-prison pipeline refers to the process by which young people are criminalized for their behavior in schools, exposed to law enforcement and the rest of the criminal justice system at an early age, and become more likely to interact with that system down the line. Now, pause on that. The school-to-prison pipeline can most clearly be represented in the enhanced version that was shown through the kids' for cash scandal in Pennsylvania where judges were working directly with the prisons and the schools to take these children for these small charges and put them directly into these private prisons without a trial or representation. Anyway, continue. Max, Max, before before you go on, do you also recall, was it Alabama or Mississippi where the sheriff's deputies was taking them straight from school to the Mississippi. yeah, that was Mississippi, yeah, for yes, stuff sir. like shooting spitballs. Exactly, and on the payroll of the private prisons doing it. So when they say school to prison pipeline, they mean the overall exercise of uh, pushing them or hurting them towards the prison system by destroying, first of all, their futures through. Uh, you know, giving them these arrest records at an early age or putting them into the juvenile detention facilities at an early age. But the, uh, there are cases where literally it was like a shopping mall. The school's working with the cops and the prisons and just shipping them right off the prison to pay. It says, uh, the pipeline is exasperated by SRS stationed on school grounds and teachers who rely on lo- local law enforcement to intervene in student affairs. Although some students are arrested and charged for violent offenses, others are punished for minor disciplinary infractions, such as wearing the wrong uniform, disrupting the class, or getting into a playground fight that are generally handled by school officials themselves. What happens after the arrest varies by location and prosecutors. Some students have their charges formalized and brought to the state's attorneys who ultimately dismiss their case. Uh, yeah, you're talking about us relying on the generosity and kindness of these prosecutors. Okay. But there are prosecutors who try to hard to convict. For ex- instance, the former state's attorney of Cook County, Illinois, Anita Alvarez, imposed maximum penalties despite bipartisan calls for restorative justice and leniency. Regardless of where kids live, a single arrest doubles the likelihood that he or she will drop out doubles it. And kids who make a court appearance are four times more likely to do so. Students removed from class uh, fall behind in their schoolwork and miss out on valuable social interactions that contribute to their overall development. In turn, they are more likely to engage criminal behavior that will lock them out into the system for life and drastically reduce access to education and job opportunities in the future. Uh, there's just a little bit more to that. You can read it at New Abolitionist Radio. But, uh, gentlemen? Well, my thing that always comes to mind with any story having to do with school prison pipeline is the, school, the uh, role of the school resource officer, um, the rise of that, and you know, I realized that, that stories like the Joe Clark lean on me style story, you know, where schools were completely out of control. I don't know 100% how schools got as out of control as they did, but I know that. What's that? 
Oh, you said yeah. You said I went to Kennedy, and Eastside High was our competitor. But my son and my daughter went to that school you're talking about uh, just yeah. after Joe Clark and that. So I don't know how we got to that point that the schools got so out of hand that those types of techniques, you know, became favored and necessary. But it's similar to how we saw, you know, the, the rise of the crack epidemic and the technique that was necessary you know, handed to us and deemed as being necessary was 100 to 1 sentencing and three strikes laws and hyper-policing and profiling and all this type of thing that led to the rise of the prison uh, boom that, that came during that same time. It's a very similar thing with the school to prison pipeline began to ramp up during those same years. So saying all that to say, I always remember when we talk about these kind of stories that police have never denied, they have in fact informed schools and parents that the police officer in the school is there to enforce the law. The police officer is not in the school to assist with enforcing school policy, is not there to agree with school administrators about how to handle any situation that can be deemed or twisted or morphed into or some stretch of the imagination made to be a legal situation. If the officer sees that, he's going to make it a legal situation. That's just how it is. They're not denying it. So, you know, they say they're there to stop school shootings or they're there to stop violence in schools or these different things, but we always see, I mean, even on a national level, we see the re the revocation of, of, of our rights as citizens uh, all the time come as a result of well we don't want nobody to hurt anybody we don't want terrorists to get us so we're going to have to take all your phone records we're going to have to take your personal information because we don't want terrorists same kind of thing on a smaller scale but it affects millions of children I would agree um, sort of like here in North Carolina with the election law which is still in the courts cost the Republicans um, the Supreme Court said that they racially drew the uh, districts here in North Carolina and then the voter ID law. But the whole premise of passing those laws was this non-existent fraud, voter fraud. There was it, it, basically none. Uh, here in North Carolina, uh, out of millions of votes cast, you might have had five cases of voter fraud. Three of those were honest mistakes by elderly people. So they, they use these non-existence problems to create these laws to to do what they want to do. And that's putting people into slavery. OK, um, I tried to find some information. I was like, OK, why is Missouri doing this? Why is Missouri uh, passing this law? Do they have a, a, a extraordinary amount of school fights or something, particularly violent or, or something? What is this in response to? And I can't find any information um, on the Internet that's showing that they had some sort of, you know, a large increase in school fights or something or a particularly egregious case that that caused them, oh, we got to solve this problem. Now, I, I try to look at all things objectively. When I first saw this story a couple of days ago, you know, I started um, I was thinking, OK, what like I was thinking along the lines of do they have a number of fights or something? What's going on? Now, bullying is a real problem. That is a real problem. Um, but my daughter, let me use her for example. My oldest daughter, she's 25 now, but this was when she was like 17 and still in high school. And this girl just kept bullying her, just bullying her uh, verbally and trying to intimidate her physically and whatnot. 
And so I told my daughter, you know how you ha- handle a bully, right? You punch him in the mouth. I said, if this girl run up on you and you fear for your safety, then you need to respond. You don't need to let her punch you first. You you do the damage first. All right. So they were at a football game. And she noticed that this girl was stalking her in the parking lot, trying to hide behind cars and whatnot and sneak up on her. So she ran up on my daughter. They got in a little tussle. The girl ended up on the ground, and my daughter uh, started stomping her face, right? So, of course, I had to go up to the school after they broke up the fight and all of this and that. And it didn't matter to them that my daughter was a victim of bullying and, and all of that. They suspended her all the same. Now, again, she didn't really seriously injure the girl. You know, she had some red marks on her face from getting stomped out. But um, but um, they could have charged, under this law, my daughter would be facing a felony for defending herself. Okay? So, um, you know, sometimes you have to fight. And I understand schools should be a safe place. Bullying is an issue in these schools. But this is like, this is like, you know, um, just a over, I don't even know if it's a reaction to anything because, again, I can't find where there has been an increase or particularly violent school fights in Missouri. So I, I absolutely believe that this is just uh, another, the, the state setting up this school-to-prison pipeline. I also, also feel like it's retaliation for black people in Missouri for standing up. We had the uh, uh, University of Missouri incident with the black students standing up against racism, um, against Ferguson and all those little towns and what have you. And I feel like, you know, this is a response to that. Just like how they jumped up and passed laws uh, in Missouri, if I remember correctly, maybe you guys can help me, but it seems like they passed some kind of law to give even more protection to slave catchers in Missouri after Ferguson. Uh, To prevent them, yeah, I remember, to prevent them from having to wear body cams. They passed that law to make those records, you know, uh, not public when they are public records and what have you. So um, I do believe, you know, this is just, uh, I don't want to say an overreaction because we have to look at their intent. And their intent is to uh, keep people funneled into those prison plantations where um, America um, has a main pillar of this economy. All these fortune, like going back to the first story, all these Fortune 500 companies utilizing prison slave labor. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just very, very sad. Um, I don't know what the people of Missouri can do to respond to this other than, I don't know. I, I don't know what I would tell my child in a situation if I lived in Missouri. I'm definitely not going to tell them to let somebody whoop their ass you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, in what inter- what the hell are you supposed to do? In the interview that I saw on a video, one of the policemen was speaking on it and was saying, well, parents are certainly going to have to have a conversation with their children to prepare them so they understand, uh, and I'm, I'm not quoting directly, just paraphrasing, so they understand the severity of their actions. 
I can't get a child at eight or seven or eight, nine years old to understand severity of taking food off the table that they don't know what it is. How the hell am I going to get them to understand the severity of them acting out while in class or pushing someone down or, or even getting into a physical fight? Because, as I said, I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey, while Joe Clark was the principal of Eastside High School. I knew the man personally. I grew up in that environment, and I know a lot of these kids then and now have issues. I was one of them. You know, we yeah. just things that you're dealing with that could cause you to act out in certain ways, and you need help. You don't need to be criminalized like, or sent to prison at seven and eight and nine years old. What the hell is that? It makes no sense at all. And you're attacking children now? Like, you couldn't say, you know what, at a certain age, we just can't be applying this. Yeah, I mean, we, we're going to threaten a seven-year-old with seven years in prison. Is that how we're going to handle things now? But apparently logic or apathy or, or uh, empathy doesn't exist in the minds of these racist as politicians. And I say racist because we know that racial discrepancies, according to this and our own research, in Missouri schools discipline are some of the highest in the nation. Well, it's like that all over the now. nation, yeah. Max, you bring something else to my attention. See, the whole thing, the reason why you're supposed to have a juvenile court separate from an adult court is because science shows that a child's brain does not fully develop until they turn 26 years old. So they're physically incapable of making good decisions or split-second decisions. What do I do? This this dude about to beat my ass. Well, how do I respond to that? Oh, I, I got to fight back. You know what I'm saying? So, but then also, what are some of the other uh, elements to this? Okay, what about lead poisoning? Lead poisoning has been directly linked to violence and what have you. Now, look at all the cities. It's not just Flint, people. Look at all the cities and all the places that's been impacted by this lead poisoning. Then also, look at the violent culture of America. Okay, so this is a case of telling children to do what I say and not as I do. Okay, when when that is usually America's first response to, to international conflicts is to use violence. So I, I I don't know what we expect from these children. I really don't. Children. That's it. Children. But we expect a lot. I'm just reading an uh, article from the uh, uh, Southern Poverty Law where they were defending a case where an eight-year-old boy or eight-year-old girl who they called transgender was denied access in the Boy Scouts or Boys Club or something like that. And they're suing on his behalf. At eight years old, you can't figure out whether to watch Dragon Ball Z or or what cartoon to watch. You can't figure that out. How the hell are you going to decide whether or not you're a boy or a girl? It's like they want you to be that way. They're pushing you in that direction. Why? Maybe because lawyers can make money off it? I don't know. But I know that criminalizing children only ends one way, with criminals. Well, I'll add in um, when you were, we were talking about, you know, this is happening in Missouri specifically, I'll add in some numbers so folks can maybe try to wrap their minds around something that, that it, maybe it's still the shock hasn't really, you know, set in just yet. But, I mean, this is a, a story from uh, February of 2015 after UCLA, um, the UCLA Center for Civil Rights Remedies put out a report which now the link to the report is probably passed on but I found an article 
that we had studied before that, that, that talks about the numbers. More than 14%. Missouri, first and foremost, Missouri is the worst in the nation for suspending elementary uh, black students. So that's something that is obviously very important to this story of the further criminalizing of school suspendable behavior. If you've got a state that is the number one most suspending state of black students in the nation, do you think that it's happenstance? Do you think that it's that it's just coincidence? Do you, do you think that there's not people that are able to see profit, a profit motive in something like that? So, critical thinking right there. Yeah, yeah. So at any rate, more than 14% of black elementary students were suspended last year once in Missouri during the uh, 2011 and 2012 school year compared to 7.6% of black students nationwide. So double the nationwide average in Missouri. Uh, meanwhile, Missouri's suspension rate for white elementary students mirrored the national average of 1.6%. Um, that's a 12.5% gap in Missouri compared to a six-point gap nationwide. Missouri's disparity is driven largely by St. Louis public schools in the neighboring Normandy and Riverview Garden districts, which is right where Ferguson is. Um, and then also somewhat by the Kansas City, Missouri public school system, which is near where I live. Um, the Kansas City district has, has been working on theirs and said they got some of their numbers down. They weren't nowhere near as bad. But to further the numbers, St. Louis suspended 29% of its black elementary school students. I'm not talking about high school kids acting up. I'm talking about elementary school students. 29% of its black elementary school students were suspended at least once, followed by Normandy, uh, another district, another school district that's right there in St. Louis, Ferguson area, 21%. Riverview Gardens, right there, 21%. So this also ties into what we've been telling you since Ferguson with the America is Ferguson series, what we were telling you. Ferguson wasn't even the worst city in Missouri as far as racial profiling, policing for profit, working these black folks over. City, a city like Ferguson with 21,000 black people, or 27,000 black people with 35,000 active arrest warrants and you know out of them 27,000 people, you might have been talking about 15,000 that were driving, black people driving. So these people literally had two or three warrants per person on their head while they trying to go back and forth to work. In just in Ferguson and all those cities around there are all little municipalities that all have their own little courts that we just talked about last week when they the Arch City Defenders won that lawsuit that showed that a RICO case that showed that these people are working in a conspiracy to extort money out of the citizens. And now you're talking about a criminal conspiracy that is yet to be un unveiled and prosecuted successfully, a criminal conspiracy to, to criminalize their children. Mm -hmm. And profit off of it. Profit and control. To control the population and to punish them because of the hate that these racists feel. I don't know how blatant it has to be for people. You're talking about 30% of the black children in the same damn cities where the first major lawsuit of its kind was just won in favor of the parents of these same children being unjustly and unconstitutionally prosecuted and policed and profiled and abused by law enforcement. Those same adults, their children are being, they have the same treatment happening to them. This is a matter of fact. This is not somebody just talking trash. This is not rhetoric. This is, I'm just pissed off and I just want to kill Whitey or some old mess that people try to say to marginalize the truth of the message from children to the adults. It's slave system 2017. Exactly what it is. 
they're targeting children. It's a damn shame. And somehow or another, this law got passed. And it's going into effect January 1st. You better watch kids. Hide your wife, hide your kids. Because right. they are hunting them now. Hey, and question. it's not something that's going to happen. This is a done deal. Question, is um, Nixon still the governor of Missouri, that Democrat? Jay Nixon, who came out in during Ferguson and and uh, told him that, that we're not gonna do the do the Darren Wilson trial in the streets with the riots. We we going we got a system of a history of uh, Anglo American jurisprudence that we're gonna try Darren Wilson in the courts. Everybody stop riding and go home. Yeah, he uh, he's still the governor. Is he the one who signed this bill into law? He the governor. Yes. They, yes, they, hey, they go one of y'all so-called allies, black Democrats. I'm just saying. I don't see them as dem- the Democrats or Republicans or Libertarians as allies. How we say in the South, man, one of them. Man, one of them <laughs> is my ally. Man, one. <laughs> man, one is my ally. We are trying to form our own platform, the abolitionist platform. And the only thing that we would accept in lieu of that is what the Nation of Islam is trying to build, which is a justice platform. Other than that, forget about it. At least that's from my perspective. That's how I feel about it. Others feel differently. And, you know, this is just not the case. Remember, all just came out regarding the adults. They're targeting anybody who dares stand up against them. You know, we found new tactics to fight against to make these issues be known, to make uh, America in general just wake up and pay attention by disrupting their normal lives. Well, there's a law that's being proposed now out of Washington that's going to turn that into a felony. So you can have that 95% plea bargain rate. Just keep on going. And uh, yeah, Max, so to that. Yeah, one last thing. If I was a parent in Missouri, uh, I would not be accepting any plea bargains. I would ch- take my chances in court. Good idea, Scotty. Let me add before we close it out. Yeah. Let me add before we close it out. Jay Nixon was behind, was uh, on board with this law. But um, in the last election, they did uh, finally get him out of office. So he's, I think he had a 20 something year run, but he's he's gone now. Eric Brighton's got in the Republican because I remember they talked about they had the, the Republican trifecta. Yeah, well, Johanna, like we've always said, um, modern day slavery and human trafficking in this country has always been a bipartisan affair. The Clinton crime bill does not get passed without the leadership of Newt Gingrich and the Republicans in Congress. Man, we got to get rid of some of these people who have been around for 50, 60 years sitting up in Congress. Do you think that they weren't around during the lynchings? <laughs> Like in the crowd, smiling and pointing at the hand body. I mean, with the facial recognition that's going on now, we could probably find more than a few of them, I'm sure. And as a matter of fact, I think recently Obama just signed a law which was proposed by the NAACP that allows you to uh, try cases pre-1980, civil rights cases. So we may have to, we may be able to have the opportunity to start going and using facial recognition technology to find out exactly who was there and participated in these lynchings that happened, extrajudicial lynchings that happened to black people all across America. 
we might just be able to find out if uh, Newt Gingrich just happened to be there despite his uh, rhetoric or if they, uh, any one of these politicians. Um, I want to move on to this next story so we try to get as many of them out of the way as we can. But this one, as I said, is another law that's being proposed. It's not a law yet. It's being proposed. And a Republican state lawmaker... Max, 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 let's take yeah. the break and uh, start the news story on the other side, if you don't mind. And also, just a right. reminder, if anybody has a question or comment, you have to hit star, star, and uh, we'll acknowledge you and get your question or comment. What he said. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after these messages. Podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. This story comes from The Hill. It says a Republican state lawmaker who was an outspoken supporter of President elect Donald Trump is proposing a bill that would allow authorities to charge protesters with committing economic terrorism. I respect the right to protest, but when it endangers people's lives and properties, it goes too far. Washington State Senator Doug Erickson said in a statement, fear, intimidation, and vandalism are not legitimate forms of political expression. Those who employ it must be held to account. Now, in this next uh, series of rhetoric, I want you to pay attention to the hypocrisy going on where they say it out of one side of their face and then right out of the other side of their face. It says, quote, we are not just going after the people who commit these acts of terrorism. He added, we are going after the people who fund them. Wealthy donors should not feel safe in disrupting middle-class jobs. The proposed bill would make protesting a classy felony should it cause any sort of economic disruption or jeopardize human life and property. Such a proposal would mean violators could face five years in prison, a $10,000 fine, or both. Now, any group who organizes a protest that is considered disruptive would also be charged with economic terrorism. The law would not apply to strikes or picketing. So any organizers, just as Sheriff Clark out in Wisconsin did and unconstitutionally just went and rounded up organizers, any organizer is liable to get five years in prison or $10,000 fine. So the next time you want to put on Facebook, we're all getting together down at the city hall to protest police brutality, your ass could go right to jail or pay $10,000 in fine. This is nothing new. More of the same, man. Profit centers, cash registers. As people, I, I, I don't, I don't know what it will take. Do people think they just got enough money where it ain't that big of a deal, or are people uh, just kind of figuring, well, it ain't going to be me, so it doesn't matter? I mean, at some point, I'm just trying to figure out why is not the obviousness of the system becoming the, the conversation that we have in, as opposed to saying you're blaming the victim or blaming the person all the time and not even giving them the, 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 
title of victim, saying they brought it on themselves. It's their fault. They're, they should, if you don't want to get shot by the police, just do what they say. Don't do crime if you don't want to do time. All this type of dismissive, you know, deflection. I wonder what it would take to just get us to a point where people would just talk about it. Like, you know, there's a lot of profit being generated off this kind of stuff. I don't think I like that. What can we do to stop that? We don't even, I mean, just let's just look at it like that. This is, again, um, history repeating itself. This is why it's important for people to be students of history. Not just so you can know yourself, but so you can know the enemy and know his tactics. Now, Dr. King, Martin Luther King Jr., spent time, I think it was in Alabama, Alabama jail, on what? What was they charging him with? Anybody know? They charged him with a violation of an anti-boycott law from 1921. That if you cause any business, if you're talking about boycotting businesses and, and things of that nature, and you're going to cost us money, well, we can lock you up for that, okay? And and so this is just another law like that one. Um, this also reminds me of a current threat to protests. During, uh, Hillary Clinton went down there to APAC and gave a great speech where they were talking about criminalizing the BDS movement what is that boycott divestment sanction movement aimed at israel uh for its human rights violations and what have you so this is just this is more of the same this is not nothing new people they did this to dr king uh uh and the leaders at that time locking them up over anti-boycott laws i mean come on so I, I'm not surprised at this. Uh, what is going to be the response? I mean, this to I mean, me is like a violation of a person's First Amendment speech, right? Absolutely. absolutely. So this means what? What is it going to take? Somebody to get charged and then uh, a court case that works its way up to the Supreme Court for them to tell us what we already know as human beings is that we have a right to do all of this. So this just points to uh, 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 the old tactics of a very evil country that is still engaged in the very same things it's always been engaged in. Scotty, I don't know if you remember uh, one uh, Sunday evening, you let me co-host with you on Political Prisoner Radio, and we talked about the uh, two activists that had been put in prison um, through the uh, Animal Enterprise Protection Act, if you remember, that yes, was when I remember. I first, that was when I first discovered the current version of what you're talking about with how they arrested King, and we talked about then on that program the implications for all other forms of protest and other activist groups and how this could be turned against you. The actual letter of the law says the AEPA. Um, Animal Enterprise Protection Act of 1996, then, re- then uh, updated in 2002, um, criminalized the act who damaged or caused the loss of any property, including animals or records, used by the animal enterprise while attempting to cause uh, physical di- disruption to the functioning of an animal enterprise. Under the AEPA, an individual who caused a property loss of $10,000 could be sentenced to fines and or six months in prison. If an individual caused a property loss of more than $10,000, the sentence could be 
fines and or three years in prison. Loss of property is not limited to physical property. This statute includes loss of profits alone as economic damage. So, I mean, I don't know if it needs to be made any more clear. You protest us, we showed that we lost $10,000 and you going to jail. End of story. Right. If you clash hands and block a highway, you're going to jail. It's really just that simple. Five years, $10,000. They even gave an example in the article from The Hill where they said, you know, people were camped out on the railroad tracks to prevent a shipment of sand used for fracking. Well, that's pretty much the exact same thing as standing and blocking a highway. It's pretty much the same thing as blocking way into a business that you uh, feel has done something or is doing racist practices. It's very much the same thing. And as always, they don't say it's about one thing and then use it for another, just like they did uh, with the three strikes laws and the mandatory sentencing, minimum sentencing. Uh, if you remember, the I believe it was Polly Glass, the incident of the young white girl, 12 years old, who was raped and murdered by a recently released white uh, sociopathic prisoner and the very first person that was arrested on those laws was a black man for stealing a car radio they call him radio man who got life in prison for stealing a car radio very first person to get arrested under these new laws and it didn't stop with him it continued on within the black community and decimated the black community you know what's coming to my mind right now is a quote by uh, who was that that said that those who prevent peaceful protests uh, 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 bring a... Kennedy. Do you recall the quote? Can you say the quote yeah. for me? Uh, I believe yes. it says those who, yeah, those who prevent peaceful revolution uh, those who prevent peaceful revolution invite inevitable or, or make it inevitable. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Yep. So that was two of their favorites, Kennedy, and then also we know uh, uh, Dr. King also told him about riding being the the voice of the the people being unheard. Maybe they want to get about 5 million of us in Washington, D.C. on one day all at the same time so they could just mow us all down. Maybe that's the point. Well, well, we'll be there to feed, to find out. <laughs> um, we'll be there. Bring the bullets. We'll be there. If you feel you need them, bring them. Because we ain't been able to stop them yet. Well, if you don't mind, Johanna, uh, would you like to do the next story that we have? And that's the one with the California regarding the uh, civil asset, asset uh, laws. Uh, civil asset seizure laws uh, that have recently been changed by the governor out there in California. I put it at the top of New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, you, you want to just click it open there? I got it up. Oh, uh, from Hidden Run. By the way, you think it's what now? I think this is a win. I think that it makes a small dent in what's going on because they are just abusing this system of civil asset seizures. Uh, cops are just taking, I mean, they are highway robbers, literally, to the point where the entire nation of Canada had to warn their citizens to be wary of our police because they were robbing people. Yeah. Yep. 
It's a it's a problem that we've discussed on this program many times over the years. Uh, entire police departments have been shut down, like literally shut down uh, behind this kind of practice when it was found found out what was going on and, and they were prosecuted. They ended up shutting down the entire police uh, the entire police force of the city that was in Texas. There, I remember that story very well. Uh, this is uh, off of Reason. Dot com uh, on their hit and run blog California next asset forfeiture reform mostly closing lucrative fed loophole um, California Governor Jerry Brown signed a sweeping asset forfeiture reform bill into law on Wednesday making California the largest state in California in, in the country to roll back a practice that critics say allow police to seize property with little to no recourse for the owners with uh, Governor Brown's signature California becomes the 17th state in recent years to pass some form of civil asset forfeiture reform Nebraska and New Mexico have also banned the practice outright. Um, civil asset forfeiture, of course, we've talked about. This is allows the police to see, uh, seize property. Uh, typically, it's going to be cash or cars, but you know, also it could be you know flat screen TVs, video games, people's entire homes, um, anything the police can say that they suspect was involved in some sort of a crime. Uh, police do not even have to convict, or in some cases, even charge someone with a crime to seize their property. Law enforcement groups say the practice allows them to target the ill-gotten gains of drug traffickers and organized criminals, but civil liberties advocates say the perverse incentives uh, and lack of safeguards lead just as often to everyday citizens citizens being shaken down for cash. Well, the new law will require police to obtain a criminal conviction before they can forfeit assets under $40,000 and more significantly receive payment from the federal government's revenue sharing program for that seizure so here's the there's the the crux of it all that's the heart of the matter right there the new law is going to require the police to obtain a criminal conviction not just say they suspect that the the person has been involved in some kind of crime so let's just kick in the door and take all their stuff and then bar their ability to defend themselves against any charges that may later come and if charges don't come, the person has no assets at this point to fight in court to get their things back. So a great deal of what they get from people, they don't even end up charging them anything. They just stole their stuff, and you can't even get it back because you've got to go through the court process to win that back. And if they took your home, took your cars, seized your bank accounts, whatever they did to take your assets, you don't have anything to liquidate to go fight back. So you just don't have nothing and never even got charged. It's like a type of Khalif Browder just get thrown in jail for three years type. We never even charged you with anything. So this is what's happening for real. These are not just, this is not rhetoric. This is reality that's happening throughout the state to the point where the law has been changed. And it's also cutting them off from receiving federal government revenue sharing, which is a part of why they do what they do. Cause they can get matching funds from the feds for whatever they steal from you, whether you get charged or not, they can get a check from the feds. Sickening. It's clear based on national media coverage and hundreds of calls <clears throat> that have come to my offices from people all over my state telling us about egregious abuses that this was a bill we on the floor. California, so there you go. The state, the, the governor's telling you, if you give him hell, if you beat him up enough, if you just keep going crazy on the situation that you know is serious, like we just talked about St. Louis, we just talked about Missouri with this felony uh, listing for children in school where black kids are already 30% being suspended so you know who's going to be getting felony charges if you care enough about it you can petition your governor to where they will put laws in play they will stop it 
So the whole point of this program is to tell you enough information. Something will trip your trigger to where you will do what you can do on your end. We do what we can do. What we we do what we can locally where we're at. Scotty, me, Max, others that are a part of this. We talk about other people all the time. But you, the listener, can share this information. Can get other people excited. You can show up in DC in August and be a part of the actual fight. Yes, Ed indeed. Ingram. Sorry, I get you know I get off I get off track. I'm sorry. Under previous California law, conviction was required to forfeit uh, property valued under twenty five thousand, but that did not stop local and state law enforcement from working with federal task forces where there are no such rules. Working with law, federal law enforcement allows local police to keep up to eighty percent of the proceeds from assets uh, asset forfeitures that they participate in. So you bring in the feds on whatever it is you investigate, and you ain't even got to get charges. You can keep 80% of whatever you take just going around jump out boys, just taking people's shit with no charges. As long as you can get a fed to ride with you, you can keep 80% of it. Like, So I'm glad that this came to be, like you said, this is a, a victory. I'll put the uh, link up. Oh, you said you already put the link up on the page. So um, according to a report last year, this is the last part that I guess we can discuss. According to a report last year by the Institute for Justice, a libertarian-leaning public, uh, whatever, uh, asset forfeiture laws in several states. The, the Justice Department paid local and state agencies in California more than six hundred and ninety-six million dollars between two thousand and two thousand thirteen, compared to twenty-three million dollars in proceeds from state-level seizures. Do you think there was a problem there? They can keep eighty percent of whatever they take from you without even charging you with anything as long as they got the feds involved. Do you think the United States federal government is complicit in highway robbery of the citizens of the state of California? It's pretty obvious that they are, undoubtedly. Oh, and just uh, for the information for yourself or the listeners, I found the uh, link to a, a study that comes from the uh, public integrity organization, which is a state-by-state -state look at students referred to law enforcement. So you can see where your state is uh, standing in this instance of racial profiling of children. So is this a win for us, Scotty? Like I said, um, I've said many times before, death by a thousand paper cuts. So, yes, yes is a win for the people of the state of California. This will go a long way to preventing highway robbery by slave catchers. It's funny that you should use the terms death by a thousand cuts because the next story that I want to get in it came from you and it's a woman who's putting her life at risk literally to uh, try to get people free. Um, she's going on a hunger strike and she even said at one point she's going to refuse water and is very aware that people can only last so long without water. Um, I was hoping maybe you would share that story with us. Yes, yeah, sure. This is a story that actually came from comes from my local area. Um, the Charlotte Post, which is a black-owned newspaper out of Charlotte. Um, as I was preparing, as I knew you were going to this story next, I just did a quick, a quick Google search on her name to see if any of the other local media, like the Charlotte Observer or 
uh, the News and Observer, you know, the major uh, papers of record, quote unquote, uh, here in the state of North Carolina, they have yet to pick up this story. So this story comes to you from a small paper out of Charlotte, a uh, historically black newspaper uh, called the Charlotte Post. Uh, the Reverend Madeline McClenny Sadler is willing to starve for prison reform, says this article. Uh, McClenny Sadler, founder of the Huntersville-based Exodus Foundation. Huntersville is like a little small rural area just outside of Charlotte, you know, sort of like where I am outside of Charlotte. Um, but uh, Huntersville's-based Exodus Foundation, uh, she plans to go on a hunger strike on January the 5th if President Barack Obama doesn't extend clemency to an estimated 80,000 nonviolent federal prisoners. An estimated 190,000 are in federal custody, according to the uh, FBP, the Federal Bureau of Prisons. The U.S. has 2.1 million inmates, the most of any country. China, a communist nation, is second at 1.5 million. If we have no word on either, I like to know where they got that information from about 1.5 million being in prison because I don't believe that's accurate because state of Louisiana has seven times by itself has seven times the uh, Chinese prison population. So I don't know where they got that from, but let me continue. If we have no word on either request by January the 4th, McClenny Sadler said in a December 19th email, the young, the hunger strike will begin on January 5th and end at midnight on January the 20th, regardless of the outcome. McClenny Sadler is asking supporters to join the strike if advocates don't get a meeting with Obama or a clemency program before then. I ask that you fast to whatever extent you are able she wrote supporters I will refuse water at some point the average human does not survive past three days without water I do not ask you to go that far fast to whatever extent is safe for you or as you are led by God an exodus coalition plan which McClenney Sadler says has been endorsed by more than 25 agencies and individuals has been sent to the White House which hasn't responded if we do not support the president in going big and bold, they will die in prison, she said. While I am hopeful that President-elect Donald Trump will lead strongly in prison reform, and I will support justice no matter who leads our nation. We cannot take any cha changes. Um, it's, it goes on to say nonviolent inmates, many of them young adults, pose minimum risk to society. Clemency advocates argue, and the Exodus Foundation wants those who served at least three years of their sentence to be declared eligible for release. The lives of prisoners matter. Hear that, Black Lives Matter? Uh, the lives of prisoners matter as much as mine, McClinley, uh, McClinley Sadler said. Sins against society or criminal acts do not limit the power of God to transform, redeem, and change lives. We are hypocrites to suggest otherwise. Um, and um, it has a link to their clemency proposal. And, and I salute her. I salute her, man. This is the first, the first, and I would call her, um, 
she is not one of those who is showcased on CNN or MSNBC like many of these people like Van Jones and and you know the uh, 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 what's her name Alicia Garza's of the world they don't she not getting showcased okay on national media but I would definitely call her a leader and this is bold leadership from her and this is this is the first black person in a leadership position uh, um, um, that has called for such a thing. I don't see anybody else, any other organizations, I don't have to name their names, that's calling for this, except for, you know, us here on New Abolitionist Radio, because we always been calling for them to be released and what have you. So uh, I salute her, man. I salute her. Um, uh, again, her name is the Reverend Madeline McClendley Sadler. She's out of Huntersville, North Carolina. Um, the name of her foundation is Exodus Foundation, and she says she's going to put her life on the line uh, to demand Barack Obama do something. Well, I hope she don't die waiting on that fool. I shouldn't call people a fool, but I hope she don't die waiting on that proxy. If she waits on him, it's likely, it's likely that she could. I mean, this reminds me of, uh, um, and just as I was going to say his name, uh, Randall Robinson back during Bill Clinton, the first black president, uh, according to, what was it, Alice Walker or Toni Morrison, one of these black authors, uh, called him the first black president when Bill Clinton was uh, sending the Haitians, uh, Haitian refugees back to Haiti and destabilizing that government and causing those people to run right into gunfire and be killed and jailed. They was trying to become refugees in America and he sent they turned their boats around and sent them back when uh, Bill Clinton was involved in in uh, destabilizing the, the, the banana business. They supported those people that lived all throughout the Caribbean islands. He was a part of that because one of his major supporters owned and ran uh, Chiquita Banana Corporation. So he completely changed the entire landscape of that. There were people that were aware of that type of thing even back then and and when he did that, when he uh, made those moves, Randall Robinson went on a hunger strike the same way. Then Rwanda exploded. So we saw all the people being killed there. So there's people that have been willing to put their lives on the line uh, to combat against these liberal, all-for-the-people, Democrat, love black folk presidents, even back then. Yeah, I, I salute her. I, I've never been a fan of uh, harming yourself to get attention or causing yourself injury to get attention for things, but I understand the point. And whatever you want to do or need to do, do. That's the way I look look at it. Whatever you want to do or need to do, do. If it brings attention to it and it's the only thing you have available to you or feel you have available to you, then use it because it is that important. I mean, this is between life and death and freedom and slavery. Yeah, I think we should reach out to her, uh, me specifically, since she is not that far from me, because I'm still not seeing that she has made the connection to 21st century slavery and human trafficking. Okay. Yeah, reach out to her, Scotty. Yeah, and and let her know and, and, and suggest to her, in addition to releasing those prisoners that she's calling for, that she should also call on Barack Obama to shut down Unicor. You're right, and I, I'm kind of—I I just kind of laughed a little bit because when you said that, 
in my mind, I heard Guantanamo <laughs> like, shut down one. It's just not, you know, he's not going to do it. He not, he's not going to do it. We never heard him say prison for profit, ever. We never heard him talk about private for-profit prisons, ever. I mean, these are just things that he shows what side he's on by purposely ignoring it, by acting like it doesn't exist. It's sickening, man. It is. It's just It's just sickening. I'm just to the point with all of it where, I mean, this is how you end up being, this is how I end up being. I can't speak for nobody else. This is how I end up being, I won't say in, even indifferent about Donald Trump. I have evaluated it as logically as I can and as spiritually and meditated on it as I can for weeks and months now. I am happy that Donald Trump is in office. It has been hell. It has been hell the last eight years with all these comfortable, compliant, complicit, happy folks that are the oppressed of the freaking planet Earth. The foot is on their neck, crushing their damn throats, and they've been happy because the man with the boot on his foot had brown skin and had on nice shoes and he had some nice dance moves and he could sing good and he had a good sense of humor he had a nice stroll when he wore his Ray-Ban sunglasses walking from Air Force One man he's so cool all of this bullshit everything that people have been eating up and loving and then you get a handful of his hardcores that have this handful of this 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 little list of things that he did that changed everything and advanced it and and made it better and on and on but you don't see the evidence of any such thing on any measurable scale financial social health wise nothing you cannot find the evidence you see these executive orders and these ideas and these studies that were proposed and these committees that were created and these people that were asked to check this out and report back and whatever and these people take these as victories and they've loved it and they've told you, you better enjoy it while you got it, because when, when somebody else get in there, it's going to be worse. And now here's the somebody worse, and I hope he does his worse. I hope he drives people right out of the comfortable spot that they're sitting in, acting like everything is okay. It's not okay. It's yeah, I agree with you. Million people in prison, man. I agree with you, Johanna. These same people that's losing their mind right now, they will be with these big Cheshire cat grins on their faces if Clinton had gotten in there and we wouldn't have been able to count on them to to do nothing you know when I thought about what I would do this election season and we were very much involved in politics either whether we admit it or not we were very much involved in politics directly involved in it. but when I considered my position I didn't I had to come from a, a, a new perspective I had to think outside the box I could no longer say which of these candidates will be best for us, for our people. Instead, I had to start thinking strategically and think which one of these candidates will hurt the people on the fence the most. So they will get their ass up because they will be on fire too. And that's how I came to decisions. Yeah, um, before we go to break, though, um, I'm telling you, I'm so sick of hearing people whining about Donald Trump, okay? He is what he is, and of course, we do give our battlefield assessments of his coming administration if it shapes up to be what it's going to be. But most of the complaints that I'm hearing 
is is nonsense. Like he's not presidential, or he tweets too much, or blah 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 blah. Please get serious about what we're facing here in this country. And I don't care if he got an R or D behind his name or her name. It don't matter. Slavery and human trafficking has always been a bipartisan affair. So I, I, I will just be so glad when he is gone because the system has used him to pacify Negroes. Yes, indeed. I knew that when it started. I, as a poet, I saw it firsthand and very clearly from 2007 when people were really on the verge of a revolution and all the poets were doing a revolutionary poem about bringing down a system. And then the next year, in 2008, he didn't hear none of that poetry. It was all gone. <laughs> it was all gone. Their dreams had been answered. Their prayers answered. They just forgot the revolution. That was it. It was over. <laughs> Well, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio with Scotty Reed, Johanna and I, and Max Parkers. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back after these messages. Since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, we're going to go ahead and move on to the next of our stories. We're going to kind of keep this one brief. Uh, so we can uh, do our other segments and our final statements for the evening. Since this is the last broadcast of the year, I would love for you, uh, Scotty and Johanna, to maybe give us some words about the year itself and the coming year afterwards. So I'll try to keep this one brief. The next story comes in from crooksandliars.com, and uh, I don't think it's the only place that has this information, but it says this private prison CEO is super excited about jailing unique populations under Donald Trump. And Corrections Corporation of America CCA CEO Damon Henniger said this week, and it comes with a video so you can hear it from his own mouth, said this week that he expects profits to soar under the new president's immigration policy. Of course they are. He already said he's going to incarcerate as many as two to three million more people. That's doubling the number of people we have incarcerated right now. Although CCA stock dipped over the summer, uh, thanks to new abolitionist radio and the uh, people that work with us and slavery, after the Justice Department announced plans to phase out the use of private prisons, Donald Trump's win caused the company's share price to skyrocket 43% on Election Day alone. In a Tuesday interview with CNBC, Hemminger said that CCA, which recently began rebranding itself as Core Civic, saw, a set, saw a several opportunities in the first year of Trump's presidency, including a need for increased detention capacity for the housing of undocumented immigrants. You guys profit 
if there's more people in jail, CNBC host Brian Sullivan noted, and that's not a way any company should be run. You have contracts and limits that say, well, you need to have 90% occupancy in a prison. Henninger argued that Sullivan's charge was baloney because the company encourages inmates not to not to reoffend by offering education and vocational programs. Okay, I just got to stop there because this is the CEO of CCA, and if he doesn't know that at a state level, three quarters of every prisoner end up back in prison in five years, and on a federal level, nearly 50% of all prisoners end up back in prison in five years, then nobody knows. He knows exactly what's going on. And oh, Okay. Namiel Renge Chill. We're providing a great service, the CEO insisted. We're making sure these individuals, once they're released, they can support themselves and the family and not come back into the criminal justice system. I don't even want to read this man's lies anymore. He lied. They're happy that they're going to make billions of dollars more on Donald Trump's immigration policies, and he's going to double the number of prisoners in this nation, which already has the largest number of people in cages in the history of humanity on planet Earth. That's going to double. Yeah, I just can't put his words out of my mouth. I can't do it. It's just, it tastes nasty on my tongue. It's ridiculous, man. But this is but what else would you expect him to say? This is a slave plantation owner. This is like like how people give credit to the Willie Lynch and talk about the Willie Lynch letter and talk about there was some slave owner that came up here from the Caribbean or something named Willie Lynch and taught him how to do blah 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 all this. This guy is like on that kind of level. Like if that really was a real person or whatever, David Heinegger is on that level. George Zoli is on that level. These are the slave masters that have expanded their empire to own hundreds of plantations around the country and around the world. These are the slave masters that have been able to effectively influence and in most cases create legislation to help expand their business. These are the slave masters that have been able to get away with literal murder of people that are left in their care, whether it be through outright neglect or straight up abuse and torture. These are the slave masters that are able to get away with cheapskating on offering the services that they promised they're going to offer. And now they're facing class action lawsuits from several international law firms who are saying just that. You did not tell us that you were not adhering to the, the terms and conditions of your contracts that you had with the federal government, which is why the DOJ put that memo out and said they were going to phase you out. You did not you didn't do your job. You didn't do what you said you were going to do, and you put our money at risk, so we lost hundreds of millions of dollars in less than two hours. These are those kind of slave masters. If this man is telling you th- that he don't know and that they changed their name to Core Civic because now they want to help people not reoffend, don't believe this damn fool. He's a liar. A liar on the level of the devil himself type of liar. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if they lobby for that Missouri law to put juveniles I mean kindergartens mark them with felonies. I'm not joking y'all. These are the type of people who do these things. And it also makes sense Scotty because Missouri is the home of the family that that owns Enterprise Rental Car but they also own the Keefe Group 
which is the A number one commissary provider in federal and state and private prisons all over the country. The Keefe Group is one of the major companies that's involved in uh, the the uh, prison, the uh, lobbying coalition that's known as the, uh, what is it, the, the Corrections Correctional Vendors Association. People, you can Google what I'm saying. Correctional Vendors Association, a group of corporations that profit off of prisons, selling commissary, phone time, clothes, shoes, materials, whatever, shackles, chains, handcuffs, batons, rubber bullets, you name it. If they get money off the prison system, they've come together in a group because it makes sense for them to put their money together so they can go forward and lobby Congress to get laws passed in their favor. And the base of that, one of their biggest companies, the Keefe Group, is out of Missouri. I would not doubt for one second that they went worked with the private prison companies to lobby to get that law changed, and they'll put it in other states too if they can. Patterns and practices. Patterns hmm. hmm. and practices. <laughs> right. Get them everywhere we can. And it's death by a thousand cuts, man. Well, we're going to get into our next segment, one of our two, last two segments. If we got 20, well, we got 15 minutes left, and as I said, I'd like to take it from you guys. Um, we want to do our abolition, our rider of the 21st century underground railroad, which I will keep short as well. Um, this week, our rider of the 21st century underground railroad is Adrian P. Thomas, father of seven children of Ventura, New York. When in September 2008, his four-month-old son died, he was charged with second degree sound guilty and maybe sentenced him to 25 years in, to life in prison. Uh, then again, in June 12, 2014, in a retrial, the jury found him not guilty of second degree murder and his infant son, of his infant son. The case created controversy about how much coercion is legally permissible in police interrogations. Now, the controversy stemmed from the fact that uh, they coerced this confession out of him saying that the brain trauma to his child was caused by force of uh, being thrown down. And after much interrogation and coercion, they finally got what they thought was a confession from the man. And then later on, uh, they had someone who did an investigation, a pathologist, and found out that it was an infectious disease. Uh, and he testified in court saying that after under examination of the medical records, Matthew, who had been born prematurely, had died of sepsis, a bacterial infection that invades the entire body. Can you imagine being the father of a four-month-old child and then you end up going to prison for killing your child who died of sepsis and they even force you into a confession to do it? Well, that man is walking free now. In 2014, he was released. And here in New Abolitionist Radio, we salute you, and we welcome you to freedom. Salute. Brother Adrian Thomas. It's amazing, man. It's amazing. People literally on the Underground Railroad, about to be 2017. Amazing. Yes, indeed it is. Indeed it is. Scotty Reed, do you have a uh, abolitionist in profile? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Let me go ahead and go into that so I can leave y'all enough time for your final statements. Uh, let's see. Um, our abolitionist in profile tonight is Charles Lennox Redmond. Uh, Charles Lennox Redmond, 1810-1873, joined the abolitionist movement while in his early 20s, working as an agent 
for Lloyd Garrison's Liberator in 1832 and later as a lecturer for the American Anti-Slavery Society. These experiences helped him um, earn a nomination as the only African-American delegate to the 1840 World Anti-Slavery Convention in London. During this conference and his subsequent United Kingdom lecture circuit, he developed a reputation as an eloquent orator, additionally demonstrating his commitment to women's rights by protesting the convictions, convention's rejection of female delegates. Upon his return to the United States, uh, Redmond labored not only to end slavery, but to improve the lives of free blacks in the North lobbying the Massachusetts House of Representatives to end segregation on trains. Redmond died in Boston in December 1873, and he is buried in Harmony Grove Cemetery in Salem. Frederick Douglass named one of his sons for him, Charles Remond Douglass. New Abolitionist Radio salutes Charles Lennox Remond Salute. Salute. Man, that's something when Frederick Douglass is naming his kids after you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know that you have so much respect. That's pretty wild. Yeah, man. That's that's what's up. Wow. It amazes me every week we do that segment, man, that the intensity level is the same right now if you know what you're talking about, if you know what you're looking for. But just like for them brothers and sisters back then, the intensity level of the masses and confusion over the true issues and all the same things we face right now is what they were dealing with. But they pressed on anyway. Like, they kept going. So it's just amazing every week to to hear those segments. Yeah, I would like to start seeing more films based on these abolitionist lives. I mean, we got the Solomon Northrup story. Um, everybody knows about Fred, Frederick Douglass. We just got the fictionalized Nat Turner story, uh, Birth of a Nation. But, I mean, over the years that we've been highlighting these abolitionists, and, some, of course, we run out of them, so we just recycle them. But, I mean, just reading about them over the years, these people led amazing lives, these these people do you not think this man was under constant his life was under constant threat but yet they still stepped up and spoke truth to power so like the sister who's going on the hunger strike yeah so i mean i would like to see more films made of these people there's certainly you know um no lack season two of underground features uh harriet tubman i'm looking forward to that mm-hmm mm-hmm Well, guys, um, do we want to go into our final uh, comments for tonight yes. or, or statements for the year? Yes, yes. Exactly, exactly. Uh, would you like to start it out or are you hunting? I'll start. Um, I right. just want to say that it's been a pleasure. It's been an honor and to work with you guys uh, for the number of years that we've been working together. I look at this program and what we do um, no different than what Mr. Redman was doing when he was working for the Liberator. Uh, we know anti 
Slavery publications were key in producing anti-slavery propaganda and changing the minds of the masses to get get them to rise up against this evil. So it has really been a pleasure. You know, I've been working with Max since it began, and then um, uh, Johanan came aboard, you know, shortly thereafter. And I, I just can't think of two other people I'd rather be doing this with because you guys put in the work to educate yourselves, to do the research. And I know that if I'm on the battlefield with you guys, you, you're not going to waver. You're not going to back down. You're not going to turn tail and run. So it's just been a pleasure. And also, a shout-out to the new abolitionist movement out there, okay? Um, Although we don't have a formal uh, organization, and and we may develop one, another anti-slavery society, we do have an informal organization of people that we have organized through social media, and that has grown to over 3,000 people. That's part of Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery and Human Trafficking. It is not something that where we just say, hey, I'm going to start this group and I'm going to just start adding people without even asking them if they want to be an abolitionist. No, these 3,000 are people who requested to be a part of this movement. So shout out to you all as well. Um, You have been behind just as much as anybody else, anybody on this program on pushing the abolitionist message and making things happen. While we have experienced some setbacks with the election of Donald Trump, we almost, we almost, we came very, very close to putting them enough pressure on the system to make them shut down private prisons. Look, don't think that them people in Congress just sat around and said, hey, you know what, I think it'd be a good idea to abolish private prisons. No, no, power can seize nothing without a demand, as Frederick Douglass said. And we've been putting them demands out there, and we have seen some movement on there. Are we as far as we would like? Of course not. Slavery has not been abolished yet. But I guarantee you, I guarantee you, if we keep doing what we're doing and recruiting new abolitionists, that we may just see an actual end to slavery for real this time in my lifetime. And I hope that to be the case. Thank you. Amen. Indeed. 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 Yeah, it's the uh, end of another calendar year. So, um, just looking back on it, it has been a hell of a fight this year. And like Max said early in the program, we definitely struck blows that left marks. So for that, you know, I'm definitely thankful and proud uh, to to say you gentlemen's names in any any company I'm I'm in. <laughs> you know, I'm not ashamed anywhere I go to speak on abolitionism and speak on my comrades uh, that we stay in the trenches. You know, we don't get in shape. We stay in shape. We don't get ready. We stay ready. We stay on this battlefield fighting for this for whatever our personal individual reasons are and for whatever reasons that we've come together and collectively decided enough is enough. And that's something I'm definitely thankful for and and it's changed my life. And to be honest with you, corny or whatever, giving my life more purpose. You know, it's not a selfish undertaking of raise my children a certain kind of way so my future and my family can be. It's not a personal undertaking to get wealth 
It's not for fame. It's not for anything other than freedom, period. It's for freedom. It's for people that don't have a voice. It's for people that are not believed. It's for people that are forgotten, that are crushed, that are killed. America has the most rapes of any place on planet Earth. It's for people that are raped every day. It's for people that are beaten, that are maced, that are tortured, that are denied their medical care every day. Every day. Not they dealt with it one time in their life. Every day, somebody's coming to get them. It's for these people that I do what I do, and I'm thankful for the brothers that do it with me. I want us to be on guard for, for, the, for the new year, for what's coming. You're going to see a lot of people that call themselves organizers and activists and want to do these works that are going to be all about coming up with new narratives and new language and new directions they want to go and include new people that have not done anything or cared about freedom for anybody else. Now they want to be on center stage. You're going to see all kind of foolishness like this. And they're going to compel you with your emotions to join up. And if you don't do it, you must be a horrible person. You must be an evil person. You must be an ignorant person. You're an uneducated person. You're not a progressive person. All you got to say to anybody that's against what you're talking about when you talk about abolitionism is slavery. Do you know slavery still going on? Are you fighting against it? How about we fight for freedom all together? Peace to the abolitionists. Death to the oppressors. Amen. I echo your brother's sentiments. It has been a pleasure and an honor to walk through 2016 with you two. Uh, side by side and making these differences and changing people's minds and uh, trying to change the course of history towards freedom's sake. Uh, I know we have lofty aspirations, but we're getting some of it done. And we may not complete everything we set out to do, but we're going to get, we've already got some done and we're going to continue working. So like I said, 2017 ain't got to come looking for me. I'm on my way to get you because I'm not stopping now. We are going to keep this fight going until it ends. And ending it means ending slavery, freeing the imprisoned who are innocently, or the innocent who are imprisoned unjustly, and stopping the huntings of people, uh, citizens of the United States of America, being hunted like cattle all across this country. That's our goals. Um, I was going to read a quote from Frederick Douglass, but I think I would rather read something else instead. For those who know me, uh, I'm a spoken word arts and poet. Uh, as Scotty said, I've had international exposure and people across the world uh, are familiar with my work. One of my comrades and best friends died yesterday. His name was Tavis Brunson. He's one of the greatest poets in this nation has ever seen, a true inspiration. When I say one of the greatest, I mean he had the awards to back it up. Everything that you can imagine to be done, he did it. And we worked together very closely for the past 15 years. We lost him yesterday. And in honor of him, I would like to read a poem from him. When your voices first cracked with passion, did you know you'd still be heard? that even strangers in passing would come together to your words. Thank you for your voices. Thank you for your love. We appreciate your choices, though at times they had to be tough. We promise never to forget. We promise to always fight. As poets, dreamers, and activists, we will always shine your light. So today we will mourn, and today we will cry. But we promise on tomorrow we will rise. 
will rise. Excerpt from the poem To Maya and Ruby by Tavis T. Brunson. Octavis 13, 1972 to December 27, 2016. You've been listening to New Abolitionist Radio and the Black Talk Radio Network. I'm Max Parthas. My co-hosts are Scotty Reed and Johanna Elia. And we hope you join us next year, 2017, so we can continue this fight until it ends. And remember that abolition is a reason for revolution so we can finally know. Peace. Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time. Rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing. Rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord anger is no longer feared if his protection is gone and your enemies are near if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake break and fall if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all rise up no matter if the prize is high in the skies or deep deep in perdition if our leaders are globally despised and always seem to rise through attrition or blatant nepotism if women and children have to live in impossible conditions if you have to die due to someone else's damn decisions rise up when innocent citizens perish for all our sins sake if the future seems bleak and your soul's at stake rise up when it appears that any hope left may already be lost if the price is your son or your daughter's life and you refuse to pay the cost if you ever had to ask god why and the thunder rolled if you just once had to wonder have we 